Shall we pray? Dear Lord, just make me a nail upon the wall, fastened securely in its place. Then from this thing so common and so small, hang a bright picture of thy face, that men may pause and look upon the loveliness depicted there. Then passing on their weary ways, each radiant face may bear, stamped so that time can ne'er efface the image of thy glory and thy grace. Lord, let not one soul think of me, only let me be a nail upon the wall, holding thy picture in its place. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our topic at this hour is the seal of God. We've entitled it, Dear Me, Dear You. What is the seal of God? The seal of God is a seal of love. For 1 John 4, 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So the seal of God is a seal of love. As a young man, as an evangelist, I often presented in my evangelistic series of meetings the seal of God. I often quoted Isaiah, the 8th chapter and the 16th verse, where it says, bind up the law, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And I tried to make clear to the people that a seal is a legal instrument, which it is. And the legal instrument gives the name of the authority. And it names his official capacity and the territory over which he has this authority. And I made clear that the only one of the Ten Commandments that has this is the Fourth Commandment. And it's right in the center of God's love law. So the Fourth Commandment is God's seal. But I think that many times as I presented it, I failed to make clear that since God is love, his law is love, therefore his seal is a love seal. It's not just a, you must do this or else. No, not at all. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. God rejects any form of obedience that's not based on voluntary love. Anybody that goes through any form of obedience, unless it's inspired by love, it's rejected by the Lord. Because God is law, love, his law is love, his Sabbath is love, and he cannot accept anything but loving obedience, spontaneous loving obedience. So the seal of God is the seal of love. How is it placed on his children? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. It says, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit has a gift. The Holy Spirit has a fruit. The Holy Spirit has many gifts. The Holy Spirit has many fruits. But the outstanding fruit of the Spirit is love. The outstanding gift of the Spirit is love. When the Apostle Paul presented in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 the gifts of the Spirit, 
you'll remember that he placed the 13th chapter right in the middle of the 12th and the 14th. Of course, they weren't then divided into chapters. But the 13th chapter of the gift story of Paul says, in effect, if you have all the other gifts and you don't have love, you're nothing. Nothing at all. So the prime gift of the Holy Spirit is love. The prime fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And what is love? The 13th chapter, 1 Corinthians, tells us what love is. Love suffers long. Love is kind. Love endureth all things. Think of it. Endureth all things. Hopeth all things. Believeth all things. Love never faileth. Love seeketh not her own. What is love? The, the love that the Holy Spirit seals us in is the most unselfish attribute that the human heart can possibly receive. Love. A love that's unselfish. What would happen to homes if husbands were unselfish, if wives were unselfish, if they're teaching their children not a brute obedience, but a love obedience? My friends, it's amazing what could happen to the marriage and the home throughout our country and other places in this world. The seal is love. The Holy Spirit stamps the seal on the human heart. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5:22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so on. So, you see, friends, since no man can obey God except as he loves God, what a tragedy it is for any professed Christian to try to get someone to obey God on the basis of belittling him. I remember at the same time I was telling you how I, in the last session, I was telling how people were rejoicing because I was riding that beast all over the rostrum. My partner spoke one night on love on, in the absolute. And I've never heard such a sermon on love in the absolute in my life. Brother, it was the most high-pressuring thing I ever heard. When he got through, he said to me, what did you think of that? I said, you gave love with vengeance. You must love God. <clears throat> my, is that love? That is not love at all, my friends. That's not what God wants. A man was talking to me several several hundreds of miles from here. He told him an experience, and he was boasting. He said, I was in a, in a, at a dance party one night, and my wife was with me. And he said, I, of course, neither of us were Christians. He said, and the Holy Spirit came into my heart, and about uh, 12 o'clock midnight, I said, Lord, I give my life to you. And then I remembered that my wife was not a Christian. So he said, I hastened over quickly to where she was. And he said, I said to her, Honey, I have just given my heart to the Lord. I will give you 40 minutes to give your heart to the Lord or I'm going to divorce you. How about that? He said, At the end of 40 minutes, the woman had not surrendered her heart to the Lord, so I divorced her. Is that the seal of love? Is that the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Now, it's true that this is an exaggerated example, 
But my friends, all forms of mental pressure, of belittling, of trying to shame people into obedience, of forcing instruction on them, it is all one of the mark of the beast principles. The opposite of it is the seal of God, the, the seal of the living God. When my wife and I went to the West Indies sometime after we were married, I came to the conclusion that by God's grace, I wanted men and women to be sealed with the love of Jesus Christ. This simple love that responds to his love, this simple faith that receives his love, I said, Lord, help me to share it. We had a day of fasting and prayer before the first series of evangelistic meetings. And I said, now, Lord, I, I, you know, I, I must explain to people why Thousands upon thousands of people keep Sunday. Good, earnest, faithful, lovely, winsome Christians are Sunday keepers. When the Bible never tells us that the first day is sacred, I must. I must share your word, and I must also explain to them how it came about. I must explain to them the mark of the beast. I must explain to them the change. Who, who assumed to change God's law so that Men would keep the first day instead of the day God commanded. I must do it. But I said, dear Lord, I don't want to do it with this coon in me coming out as though I were better than anybody else or as though Sabbath keepers were better than Sunday-keeping Christians. And as I pled with God and I reached out in agony asking the Lord to guide me, the Lord came to my rescue. Really. I remember the first time that I presented who changed the Sabbath from the Bible Sabbath to Sunday. The Lord just flooded me with his loving spirit. And I said something like this. I said, people, there are thousands upon thousands of good, earnest, faithful, winsome Christians who are keeping the first day of the week. They thought they were keeping it out of response to Christ's resurrection. But as they look through the Bible, they don't find anything in the Bible that indicates that that is how we celebrate his resurrection. And so they come and they say, how did the change take place? Millions upon millions of good, wonderful Christians keeping the first day when the Bible says it's the seventh, both in the Old and the New Testament. I said, I'm going to share with you this evening from the Word of God and history who it is that's responsible for the change. And then the Lord helped me to modulate my voice. And I said, and friends, I want you to know this evening that the, not one soul here tonight is in any way responsible for the day being changed from the Bible Sabbath to the first day. I don't want any of you to feel belittled in any way, shape, or manner. I don't want anybody here this evening to think that I am better than you are because I'm keeping the Bible Sabbath. Far from it. Jesus said, if we do everything he tells us to do, we're to say of ourselves what? I am an unprofitable servant. We don't work our way into heaven. Amen? By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The wages of sin is death. And if I could obey God all my life, the fact that I've sinned 
means that the wage of sin is death, and I merit nothing but death except through Jesus. So I said, <clears throat> I want it distinctly understood that no Sabbath-keeping Christian is in any way, shape, or manner to boast of his Christianity above any other denomination. I said, neither are you responsible, neither are your parents responsible, nobody here is responsible. But I said, the Bible does say in Ezekiel that the minister of God should give God's people the truth. And I must stand before the judgment seat of Christ at the last great day. And he's going to say, Kuhn, were you so eager to please people that you wouldn't tell them what my word says? And I said, so both from love and also from justice, it is my duty to share the message of God. A telegraph boy, you know, if he should say, I'll only carry good messages. I, I don't want like, I don't want to hear, I don't want to carry any message of bereavement or of a funeral or of an accident. You say, we can't use you. You must carry the messages that are given to you. So I must be God's messenger boy. But the boy that carries the message is not to belittle people. He's not to condemn people. He merely is the instrument of carrying the message. And so I went on prayerfully, pleading with God for the Holy Spirit. And then I presented from Daniel, the seventh chapter and the 25th verse. God said there would a power arise that would think himself able to change God's law, particularly that part that had to do with the time. And the only part of the Ten Commandments that has to do with time is the Fourth Commandment. I said, now we'll turn, we'll turn to Revelation, the 13th chapter, and we'll find there, there are at least seven to ten identification marks of the power that could do it. And I spelled it out, put it on the slide, and I said, now, not merely is this what the Bible says, but this power itself actually boasts of the fact that it changed the day from the Bible Sabbath to another day. And it actually says that this is the mark of its authority. And then I went on into the love of Jesus, the wonderful gift of Calvary. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our Maker, our Creator, came down past stellar worlds and systems and planets to this sin-cursed world. He surrendered to the most cruel suffering and then the second death on Calvary's cross that he might purchase our salvation. And so we say to him, Lord, the dearest idol that I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from your throne and worship only you. I'm not worshiping you, Lord, through any mental pressure of any human being. I'm worshiping you because I love you. You died in my place. You've offered me salvation absolutely free of charge. I'm not obeying you to be saved. No, no, no unsaved man, no unspiritual man can obey God. The only obedience is that which comes from the love of a new creature in Christ Jesus. I felt impressed as I brought that sermon to a close. For my friends, there were many, many hundreds of people there to invite those who would like to take their stand, to walk all the way with Jesus Christ, to place their name on a little covenant, and 505 people
who had never kept the seventh day in all their lives placed their name on that covenant card. My friends, I've come to this conclusion. The love of Christ constraineth us. Because that we thus judge, if one died for all, then we're all dead. And they which henceforth live should not live unto themselves, but unto him that died for them and rose again. The constraining power, the pressuring power, is the power of the love of Jesus Christ. Don't you love him tonight? Don't you thank God for such a love? My wife and I had the privilege yesterday of taking lunch with one of our relatives. <laughs> We'd met this relative several years ago, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. <laughs> and we had the wonderful privilege of sitting at the table with this wonderful Christian man who began to keep God's holy Sabbath, the Bible Sabbath, some, uh, what was it, a year ago or less? And he told us the experience through which he passed. And you know what was one of the most outstanding factors in his making his final decision to keep God's holy day? It was this. He said, I was in bed. And he said, I heard a voice. And the voice said, in effect, I am Jesus, and I love you. There's nothing that you've ever done will keep me from loving you. I love you. I love you. And he said, I sat up in bed, and I heard this voice. I said, was it a thought voice? He said, no, it was an audible voice. I love you. Jesus was saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. He said, Lord, all that I have is decided completely for you right now. That's the seal of God the seal of love. Man responding so completely to God's love in simple childlike faith that God seals him in his love. Where could a person find a better sealing than that? What do you say? You know what God can do in a human heart when his love is received is almost unexplainable. Back in New York State where I was born, my mother... <clears throat> told me the story of the funny woman. And I said, well, the funny woman? She lived about 10 miles from where we lived. And the story goes like this. There was a young lady there living 10 miles from us on a hill called Crum Hill, Crum Hill, New York. And she had uh, fallen in love with a handsome young man he had courted her, he wooed her, he proposed to her, and she said yes. And when the glorious event was about to take place, her sister, we'll call her sister's name Marie. Marie was helping her to get ready for the wedding. We had a wedding in this place where we're sharing this tonight. Her sister was helping her to do the little errands and get ready for the wedding, and her sister went with the groom-to-be down to the store and that store in different places, helping with all of her heart and all of her love. And uh, as Marie was helping uh, Mary's boyfriend, they were just enjoying so much the pleasure and the, and the anticipation of her sister entering upon this wonderful marriage. And when the day of the marriage arrived, the young man announced that he was marrying Marie. 
Mary's heart, Mary's hair turned white in overnight. She became sick, weak, and her mind was deranged. Neighbors and friends would go up to see after they heard about this awful event. And they came back with a lump in their throat. We just saw the funny woman. There was no joking. There was no frivolity. A broken heart. Different people would go up there on business at the farm for this need or the other. And there they would see this strange, acting, funny woman. My mother said the lady weakened prematurely, finally took her sick bed, her deathbed, and they said as she was lying there, the family gathered around and they remembered that during those years, for it was several years, during those years since her sister took her boyfriend, there was never one complaint. There was no retaliation. And now as she was there, ill, sick unto death, they noticed that her lips were moving. And one drew very near to hear what she was saying. And they would see a little smile curled on her face. And as they reconstructed what she was saying, they came to the conclusion that she was now dreaming that she was being courted by this young man. And as they kept listening, they recognized that she was now in her mind walking up the aisle to the marriage altar. And then with a little curl of the lip, they heard her whisper oh so faintly, I do. And she was gone. When my mother told me that story, <laughs> what could you think about? You'd have to think of that tragic event 1900 years ago, nearly 2000 now, as Jesus, your Lord and Savior and mine, hung on Calvary. They had brutalized him. They had belittled him. The Lord who could snuff out their lives in a second, in a thought, endured it all. And he hung on Calvary, the embodiment of love, and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so powerful was that love that one of those thieves who had been making fun and ridiculing and anathematizing him, turned as far as he could turn his head, and he beheld love, love, personalized. He recalled some of the miracles that Jesus had performed. He recalled that famous march to Calvary after those terrible trials of mockery. And he said, Lord, Lord, and he said, people. And he turned to the other thief and he said, and you, 
I want you all to understand that this man hasn't done one thing worthy of death. I deserve death. I deserve all that has come upon me, and so do you, fellow thief, but not this man. And then he cries out to Jesus, Lord, would you please, please remember me, even me, when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, yes, sir, you're going to be, I'm promising you today, you'll be with me in paradise. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Friends, forgiveness is a gift of the love of Jesus Christ. It's free. Acts 5, 31. Repentance is free. Acts 5, 31. The new heart is free. It's a gift of God. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Obedience is the gift of God. I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. We reach up in simple faith and say, Lord, I don't deserve any of it, but Jesus purchased it all on Calvary. I bring to you my choice. I bring to you my simple faith. Lord, I ask you to make me a new creature in Christ Jesus and give me your free salvation. Shall we pray? Lord, I thank you this evening that we have this privilege without any human pressure to mentally look up into to glory land and say, Dear Lord, I love you. You didn't have to come and die for me. With one thought, you could have blotted out the world. Thank you, Lord, that you love me. Thank you, Lord, that you bought my salvation. It's free. The victory is free. The new heart is free. Lord, in simple faith, I ask. I believe. I thank you that I am receiving through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Did anyone come in this evening without that assurance? And you will take it in simple childlike faith tonight. Are those viewing this program, will you do it? If so, lift your hand. Thank you, dear Lord. In Jesus' precious name, we do receive. Amen. We're now ready for questions and answers. Before we do so, let us claim the wisdom of the Lord is found in that wonderful promise of James 1.5. Dear Lord, you've said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering. So we believe, Lord, that you're granting us the wisdom for the particular problems that we have. And we thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first question. The first question gives quite a bit of background, and it goes like this. Dear Pastor Kuhn, here's my problem. I have several sisters who live nearby, there are so many problems connected with this, but they are always fighting about something. Envy, jealousy, petty issues blown up, and I become so weary. It's a case where one or the other want me to side with them, and I aim to be neutral. But not even that pleases them. The feeling is that I'm not 100% for them. I'm totally against them. Whatever I do turns out wrong. I find a growing discouragement within me. Whatever can I do? 
If it were not that I want to point these sisters to Jesus, I would give up completely. I do feel like Moses, though. I, I love the Lord more than the people of his love. Is that why I have failed to sh uh, save my family and Bless show them peace? What is the last? And show them peace. Bless your heart. Let me share with you a few texts of Scripture. And this first text is so important. It's found in Romans 12, 21. It says, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That means that you'll immediately ask God to give you wisdom as to some solution so that you won't have to talk about what they're talking, as you say. But you'll talk about some solutions. Let me suggest two or three possible solutions. The Holy Spirit may impress you with some other, but don't forget to use the ABCs of prayer as you claim a promise for wisdom. Lord, I ask you to give me wisdom. I believe you're giving me wisdom. Thank you that I am receiving wisdom. See, those are the ABCs of prayer. Now, the principle is, instead of going to orbit around the problem, you're going to orbit around a solution. We have a little red book entitled The Science of Prayer. In the back of this book, we have a little certificate that fills a page, and it's called the I Know Something Good Fellowship. And it has a motto and a name and a dedication. The motto is that I will honor everybody, 1 Peter 2.17, that I will speak evil of no man, Titus 3.2, and that if I find that I disagree with someone, I will go to him alone and not share it with anybody else. Matthew 18, 15 to 18, and Proverbs 25, 9. Debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself, and discover not the secret to another. You might want to start something like this, because as you talk with these, it's very important that you'll be very humble, you see. First Peter 2, 17, honor all men. So you might start something like this. Maybe your sister's Gertrude, let's say. Gertrude, do you know something? I just attended a series of meetings recently, and I learned about a certificate that Pastor Kuhn is passing out to people. And if, if they can't get the certificate, he said there are certain texts that they ought to jot down so they'll be the philosophy of their life. It says that we should honor everyone. 1 Peter 2, 17. And Gertrude, you know, I haven't been doing that as I'd like to. You see, instead of saying, Gertrude, you haven't been doing it, or my other sister hasn't been doing it, you say, I haven't been doing it as like I'd like to. And I wonder if you'd forgive me for wherein I haven't. I want to honor everybody. And Titus 3, 2 says, to speak evil of no one. You know, I've spoken evil of people. Will you forgive me, Gertrude? Will you forgive me, Ruth? You see? And, and I've made a resolution that by God's grace, Gertrude and Ruth, by God's grace, and I know I'm liable to fall without him, I shall seal my lips against speaking evil of anybody. It, it, it's, it's a command. I must admit I haven't been obeying it as I should, but by the Lord's grace. And will you help me and we'll help each other? And if I start to speak evil of somebody, you'll be free to remind me. And if, I, and if you start to, I'll remind you. And we'll know it doesn't mean that we're siding against each other. 
It merely means that together we're trying to obey God. You see, by taking the humble attitude, by apologizing for whenever you've made a mistake, this makes it easier for the others, you see. Then hold to it. The next time one speaks, you can say, do you know, I'm afraid since I apologized to you the last time, I have at least in my thought belittled somebody. Will you forgive me? Let's kneel together and ask Jesus to keep us from speaking evil. And here's a promise, you can say, Gertrude, that I'm claiming, Philippians 2.13. It is God that works in me both to will and to do. And God has impressed me that I must be done with this. Pray for me and I'll pray for you. Amen? Try it. What do you do when the television has become the number one thing in your home? My husband has left the church and watches television all the time. My children yell at me when I turn it off. Please help. Oh, my. That box, huh? That box. All right. First of all, let me give you several steps. First of all, you'll claim a promise like James 1.5. This is a promise for wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. We need wisdom from God, otherwise we'll bungle things, right? Because there are children, a husband, you see. So we need wisdom. We need tact. We need diplomacy. That's the first text. Now, the Holy Spirit may impress you with some other text, but this is what he's impressing me with as one way. The second text would be Romans 12, 21. Overcome evil with good. Instead of always meeting this head-on and saying, I just don't like this TV, it's horrible. <laughs> that isn't overcoming evil with good. That's overcoming evil with... <laughs> you see. Instead of that, text number three, and this is extremely important. Oh, friends. It is first... Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to put on my glasses and read it, <laughs> because friends, this is so important. This is just as much God's Word as any other command ever found in the Scripture. And here it is, 1 Peter chapter 3. This is for a wife who has a non-believing husband. Listen to this. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if they obey not the word, they, may, they also may, without the word or without a word, be won by the conversation of the wives. That's a behavior, not just her visiting, but something else with it. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, Here is a wife whose husband is turning on the TV and the, his kids are doing the same, and you are the one that's all alone. It says your conversation to be coupled with fear. The fear means a deep humility, fear that we might misrepresent the Lord, see? All right. Who's adorning? Let it not be the outward adorning, the plaiting the hair and the wearing of gold and the putting on of apparel, but let it follow. Let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. What? A meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Now, to whom is the Apostle Peter writing? Wives whose husbands are not with them in the Lord. 
Consequently, probably the children aren't either, you see. There she's struggling against him with the children, you see. And the children now, if I start forcing these children to my way instead of his way, what's going to happen? They're going to be marked with the mark of the beast principle. They're going to be obeying not from the heart at all. So now, notice. Notice this. This is amazing. Talking to a person whose husband is not in Christ. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. Here are women whose husbands are not in Christ, who are taking on an attitude of sweetness, wholesomeness. Now, as you ask God to help you to be sweet and wholesome, remember this, that your sweetness and your wholesomeness can do more to to counteract that blow tube than any other words that you can give. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing you can say that will affect so much. Now, notice the next text. This is what will happen now as you take this very sweet, winsome, delightful attitude. This is what can happen. Psalm 25, verse 9. The meek will he guide in judgment. The meek will he teach his way. That means this. As we fall, you, the children now have gone away to school, we'll say. Husbands to work. You will fall on your knees before God. And you'll say, Lord, you have promised that if I would be meek, you'd guide me. You've also said that the believing wife sanctifies the unbelieving husband, else the children are unclean. But now they're clean. So you've told me that if I'll take this meek, sweet, winsome attitude, that you will save my children. Now, Lord, and here's the next text, Proverbs 21, verse 1. It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, the Lord turns that heart in any direction. Lord, you'll change my husband's attitude. As he sees how meek and sweet I am, he will realize then, he'll realize then that I'm not trying to shove my weight around. The Apostle Paul says at that point, this can happen. Follow carefully. It says that men of the world seek to please their wives. This man now is not being belittled by anything you say. You're not taking issue with him. You see? And he sees now a beautiful, sweet disposition. And the Holy Spirit will get into his heart and say, do you see what you're doing to your wife? She's all alone here. You and the kids are just raising havoc with her. And she's so sweet. She's so kind. She's so winsome. Friends, it will work. It will work. I'm thinking of a man who put his wife through all kinds of persecution. He delighted in belittling her. She was this sweet, meek, winsome soul. They lived out on a farm, and in the summer they had thrashers. You remember the olden days when they used to have thrashers? How many remember that? Old thrashers would come, you know. And when they sat down to the meal that she had prepared, the husband, in his mean, diabolical way, said, Men, my wife's got religion. Don't any of you touch any of the food. 
until my wife asks a blessing. Now she'll ask the blessing. Ha, ha, ha. The sweet little wife very winsomely bowed her head and asked God's blessing on the food. And there was a silence that could be felt. At every opportunity that he had, he'd belittle his wife. She was sweet and winsome and kind. That thing went on for months and months and months. One day they're riding together. These were the days of horse, horse and buggy days. And as they're riding together out in the country, he turned to his wife and he said, Honey, what in this world is it that causes you to be so kind, so sweet, so winsome to me? You never ever retaliated. When I'm so mean, I'm so cussed to you. Her answer was something like this, Honey, I love you. And I know that a person who hasn't received Jesus isn't going to have the joys of the next world. And I want you to have all the joy you can get in this world. He said, I want the kind of a Christ that has made you what you are. The man gave his heart to Jesus. He became uh, the elder of that little church out there in the country. Aren't you glad? Praise the Lord. Next question. Pastor Kuhn, you said that we are not to instruct any adult unless they ask. But what about children? Shouldn't they be instructed or forced or made to hear and do our will in spiritual matters? Isn't that our duty as parents? Yes, yes. But how? How? Did you know that our favorite author has made the statement in that beautiful book, Education, that even our commands to our children should be in the form of a request? And yet, we're to insist. When we give a command to the child, that child must always obey. And there's a way to get them to obey. Don't do like one father, I was in the home, and, and he said to his little boy, you do this. And the little boy looked at his dad, and the dad said, look, I'm going to give you till I count ten. What was the father doing? He was teaching that boy that he could disobey until the dad got to nine. You don't have to say that. Sonny, you forgot. And so to help you to learn to obey Jesus, you have to learn to obey me. And so there'll always be a punishment. But when we punish, don't punish very much. The slightest punishment is to a child as much as a as, as hundred stripes to an adult. Did you know that? There's many a person, a lady told me some time ago, as I was sharing some of these experiences, she said, my little boy, or girl, whichever it was, was outside. I called the little girl in, and she didn't come. She said, I walked out, I took the child firmly by the arm with my hand, and I said, come in. She said, that thing was all the discipline. My child just crumbled under it. Some people have the impression that they just a whip and whip. No, 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 no. There are many kinds of punishment, and the punishment should be always administered in love, not raising our voices. You see, what will the greatest thing we can do for our children is example. Be so sweet and wholesome and prayerful and meek that they'll know we're not punishing them because we hate them and we're mad, you see, but rather because we love them. 
Obedience is the first law of discipline. But within this area of obedience, listen carefully, friends, not merely should children make some choices, but we should guide our children into making choices just as fast as their mind develops and they're capable of doing it. Which means by the time they're half grown, we should have taught them how to make about half of their choices. Remember, the other half is still ours. But the choices we make for them should be very diplomatically controlled, you see. Thank you. And then by the time they're two-thirds grown, we should have taught them. We should have encouraged them to make choices. You know why? First John chapter 3, 1 to 3 says this. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be what? Like him. The Christian life is a character development process. There can be no character development without choice. Uh, by the way, this is almost a direct quotation from a beautiful book entitled Patriarchs and Prophets, page 49. So if we make all the choices of our children, it means that we're depriving them of character development. So we should study every means that we can think of whereby they can make little choices and little bigger choices and bigger choices, all within the area of strict obedience. You see, my dad let me grow chickens. He let me feed them what I wanted to. He let me pull my beans up if I wanted to <laughs> and take the consequences, you see. But still, there was strict obedience in our home, strict obedience. Uh, my daughter has a little girl, or did at one time, she's grown now, and she, she would say, now it's Sabbath morning, what combination of clothes do you think would be well to wear? And if the little girl was choosing the wrong combination, the mother would say, what would you think of this combination? And the girl would say, okay, you're going to have good taste, honey, wonderful, see? Do everything in our power to help our children to develop by making little choices, still holding the reins, kindly, sweetly, joyfully, talking faith in them, talking hope, shedding them, uh, uh, filling them with our love. Next. This uh, questioner asks, how far can I go in bringing Jesus to neighbors who seem uncomfortable when I talk about the Lord? An excellent question. An excellent question. Who is our example? Who is the greatest evangelist, the greatest soul winner the world's ever known? Jesus. Can we afford to follow his example? Yes. All right. Let's see now how Jesus worked for people who were not interested in religion, his religion. And if I can see how Jesus handled it, I'll know how I can handle it, right? How many agree? Amen? Amen. All right. The first miracle that Jesus wrought was where? Cana of Galilee. Uh, some relatives of Jesus were, were doing what? Getting married. <laughs> Jesus went to the marriage feast. Now, whatever Jesus did at that marriage feast is the very first indication that we have of the type of soul winning that we can do. When he went to the marriage feast, did these people at the marriage feast want to be instructed? No way. No way. They were getting married. 
Did Jesus instruct them? No way. Now, when they were being married, the great prophecy of Daniel 9 was reaching the beginning of the 70th week. Right then, the 70th week was starting. My, what an opportunity for Jesus to unravel prophecy and say, look, do you know the days in which you live? Were you ever tempted to tell people the days in which we live? <laughs> Jesus didn't tell them one thing about the 70 weeks. Jesus didn't tell them one thing about 2,300 days. Jesus didn't give them any instruction on marriage in the home. What did he do? Anybody? That is exactly right. He gave them the thing that they were legitimately interested in. What was it? More grape juice. <laughs> Do you know how much he gave them? 90 gallons of grape juice. <laughs> Did they like it? They loved it. You don't find any record of Jesus saying one thing about his father. Why? They weren't interested in his father, in his revelation of his father. They weren't interested in the fact that he was the son of God. They were interested in what? Grape juice. <laughs> because they were embarrassed. In the Orient, it's an awful thing to run out of refreshments. And Jesus met them at their conscious need. What was the result? Now, notice now what's the result. Because a lot of people think that's impractical. It's, not, it's very practical. In John 2, verses 1 to 11, is that story. Listen, what happened? In John 2, verse 11, it tells us what happened when Jesus did that. It says, thus Jesus manifested his glory. What is Christ's glory? His character. What is his character? Love. What is his Father's character? Love. It says, thus Jesus manifested his glory, his character. What's his character? I'm interested in your happiness. That's his character. And it says, and his disciples believed on him. Thou were his first converts recorded in John. He only gave 5% instruction and 95% fellowship. All the instruction he gave was, get the water pots, fill them up with water, bear them to the governor of the feast. If you have loved ones that don't hear you talk about Jesus, you talk about how's everything going in your home? They say, well, I, the baby is sick. Oh, I'm so sorry. Tell me, you see. Or somebody's out of work. Talk about that. Always take an interest in every legitimate interest of theirs. And this is our way of letting them know what our God is like. People equate our God with us, do you see. Try it. It works wonders. Oh, we could give several studies on it, but I think there may be another question. Yes, and I'm not sure this question is by the same person, but it fits in perfectly here. It says, how do I ask a non-Christian to church the Jesus way? There are several things you might do. Number one, you claim a promise for wisdom, right? About how much time do we have to answer that question, would you say, Brother Steve? Three minutes. All right. Uh, you will first take an interest in this neighbor's interests. That's the Jesus way. For instance, we're holding a series of meetings in a certain city, and a layman, a very dedicated layman, who had given Bible studies all over the area, invited me to visit a home. He'd, he'd invited these people to the meetings. They didn't come. 
When he went back, he thought maybe if I went with him, between the two of us, we could exert enough pressure to pry them loose. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So as we went in, he said, I, I, I thought you were coming to meetings. We've missed you at the meeting. And the lady said, you know, I did plan to go. But she said, little Mary is sick, six-year-old Mary. Now notice, when she said, little Mary is sick, I looked down over to where the layman was sitting, and this is what I saw as he had his hands in his lap. This. Now he didn't go up here and do it like I am. She didn't see it. It was down in his lap. What does that say? You're boring me, sister. You're just making excuses. What is the Jesus way? The Jesus way is, tell me more about Mary. Right? Oh, why don't we have a little word of prayer for Mary? You know, Jesus loves to bring us comfort, Mrs. Blank. Why don't we pray for Mary? That's Jesus' way. When that lady sees that this man and I are more interested in Mary than we are in her coming to church, she'll come to church. Amen? That's it. Never forget, friends, that soul winning is 95% more or less. Courtship, spiritual courtship. Only 5% instruction. Meet people at their conscious need, and they'll follow you down the street. Shall we then bring this to a close by asking God to help us to have the wisdom of Jesus? These are real, real problems. Dear Lord, thank you you've promised, and you've, you've put these words into our lips. Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. We ask you that this may be our experience as we share your love with people at their conscious point of need. We believe you're hearing us, and we thank you for it in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.